1155 to the first chapter of Ezekiel, or as we call him, Yechezkel. And then take a look at the text. In thinking about space, and really, uh, not to say the final frontier, it's really hard to resist saying that. It's hard, you can't, you can't, you just have to space, colon, the final frontier. Um, I want to, I want to come back to one of the themes um, that we talked about the very first week in terms of the definition of a landscape as something that is ultimately created by our human sensibilities. That there is nature and, and there is nature out there in the world. Landscape is what we bring our interaction with it. Remember, this was one of the themes and we kind of talked about a little bit and that's what we've been doing all along is evoking, going inside text, stirring up and trying to really just stir up relationship with landscapes for all of us as, a, as Jews, as individuals, as thinkers, and as artists. is to stimulate that kind of interaction by looking at, observing from many different perspectives. So what we're going to do, so I want to come back because the one text I want to share today is a really good example of, from a Jewish perspective, how this has been operational forever and ever. It isn't just, well, we look at a character in the narrative of the Torah in a landscape and what do we understand and what they want to do, is that the role of landscape, or the role of a particular landscape, is to be something that is uh, a a human creation or express a set of ideas. I want to be even more concrete because this isn't, when you're going to see in a second, it's not so much about human beings, but to that landscape provides a venue to um, teach important concepts. I just want to say more than that. Now you may want to take a look back there. We're going to get to that. But um, the first, we're not going to read. Um, I, what we're going to look at, what we're going to look at is what's called a piyut. You should hear the word poet inside that. That's the Hebrew Aramaic word for poetry that is used in synagogue service, liturgical poetry. We have a long, long, long tradition. Oh, speaking of poets, we have a tradition. We've looked at some, poet, some poetry that's already in the Torah, but the tradition of writing poetry for, um, for religious purposes is very, very ancient. It goes all the way back. Um, and <clears throat> there are many places, it's always, if you ever get your hands on a prayer book that has footnotes, many of the prayer books we use in synagogue don't tell us much, but if you ever get your hands on a prayer book that has good, good, good footnotes, you'll start to realize how much of the prayers that we say in synagogue in Judaism are a combination of poems that have been written throughout the ages, some of them are hundreds, some of them thousands of years old, and Torah texts, and a few prayers in between structured prayers, mostly brachot, right? And that's, that's the basic scaffolding of prayer books. So what we're going to be looking at today is one of these PU team that comes on Shabbat morning, and there's a cycle. This is the fourth in the series, and what you may want to do next time you're in synagogue, if you have nothing else to do, is start to look and see if you can find where, does the, where do the poems begin. Two ways to do that is to anytime you see a bracha, pull that out, a paragraph that comes before, Pull those out, isolate those, see if you see recognizable Torah text, and then start looking at the language because poetry starts to appear. The one we're going to look at today, this piyut, is called Keil Adon, El Adon. It's 
it is a series of the it's a fourth piyut on Shabbat morning. Shabbat is a day that's all about um, this ceasing creation, God ceasing creation, and we observe. And then this is one of the poems, and they appear between the Baruch right before the Baruch which is when everybody's sort of like the, all of the psalms and prayers of the early morning service, a lot of God, you are great, and, and recognition of God in nature. Those are finished. We get, and then the Baruch is the prayer that brings people together as a community to bless God and then begin to move on a pathway towards saying the Shema, okay? which is when we talked about God is like who speaks to us and then gives us laws and that piece. The Shema is that moment. It's both a public and a private moment. And then moving on through the service. So these are landmarks. And the same way that Lois was talking about landmarks on her bike trip. These P-U-T mark, they're, they're really landmarks along the way, these kind of poems. And so moving from the Baruch to the Shema and then on to the Amidah and the Torah service comes this prayer. So... Um, uh, let's read it. I want to I look at it from this perspective of what's happening here. This is a very, very old prayer. This prayer seems to come probably influenced from in the, in the third or fourth century CE. It's old. It's, it is a, a mystical piyut, but it predates Kabbalah. Kabbalah, we don't have, we, we have you know, beginnings of tradition, but we don't have the Zohar until about the 11th century, in the, about the year 1000. All right. But we have a whole series of all kinds of mystical piyutim that were written all the way along um, if I'm in the Greek period and the Hellenistic period and the early rabbinic period. And this particular piyut comes from the tradition called the Merkava tradition. Merkava is a fancy word for a chariot. In the Israeli army now, there's a tank called the Merkava. Anytime you read anything about the IDF, they'll talk about their Merkava, their Merkava tank. So you should know that they took the name mm -hmm. of that from Ezekiel. So just like glance over at Ezekiel. Ezekiel has a vision of God and a, that sets off his prophecy. And he has a vision of God and there's fire. And you could, this would be an awesome thing to just read and think about, or, you know, especially if you like stones and different things. And, he, and Ezekiel has a vision of God sitting on a throne, on a chariot. And there's animals and wheels and it's spinning. Okay. The other place where this vision sort of appears and that's not insignificant for, because of our poem, is in Isaiah's prophecy, all right? When up in, and we're going to get to this, when um, the, these heavenly creatures start saying, kadosh, 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 which we say, I'm not going to say more about that yet, all right? So what we say sometimes in prayers is what we believe that, that heavenly creatures are saying in the mythology of this. So the Merkava tradition is a very, is a much earlier tradition, I, um, we have Merkava texts for already the second, first century BCE and beyond. And so this is a prayer that is probably a little bit later than that, but it comes from that tradition of God's chariot up in heaven. So who would like to read? And I'll sing it for you. Where are we reading? Um, on the in the text. Is, I, I, we're not going to read Ezekiel. Okay. Yeah. The two biblical texts that are behind this are Breshit, the beginning of creation, and Ezekiel. Those are those would. I put them on there for you. Also Psalms, okay. I put the, it's based on. We're, we're not going to look at those texts today, but if if again, if you get to this part in the service and go like, I think I'm going to let everybody just keep going down the road, and I'm going to stop my bicycle here, and I'm going to sit and look up these biblical sources for this piyut. You could do that. Why not? You can use that time. All right. So I want, that's why I wanted to give you these sources. Who wants to read? 
Thank you. Creation reflects the rule of God, who is praised by the breath of all life. God's greatness and goodness fill the universe. Knowledge and wisdom encircle God's presence. Exalted is God by creatures celestial, enchanced and adorned by the mysteries of heaven. God's throne is guarded by truth and purity. God is surrounded by mercy and love. Good are the lights of our God has created, fashioning them with insight and wisdom. Endowed by God with power and vigor, they maintain dominion amidst the world. Abounding in splendor, emanating brilliance, their radiant lights adorn the universe. Rejoicing in splendor, gladly setting, they rush to obey their creator's will. God is acclaimed by beauty and glory. God's sovereignty sung by celebration and praise. God summoned the sun, whose light shone forth, then gave to the moon its cyclical glow. The stars, planets, all bodies of the heaven acclaim God with praise. Celestial creatures give glory and greatness. Okay. So I would say this is a Jewish view of space. What? A Jewish view of outer space. So what images jump out at you? What do you notice? Light. A lot of light. It's interesting. The word in, there's a word that appears here in Hebrew text, Hashmal. Yes. And we don't know what it is, but the Israeli took it, the Hebrew took it, Electricity. Electricity. Just yeah. Just like if you yeah, like Merkava becomes a tank in the Israeli army, Hashmal is how do we figure out what this stuff is called? Well we'll look at Ezekiel too. No, it's just a particular name for one. Right, 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 right. Yeah. A tank is called a tank. tank. <laughs> I think we usually think space is kind of empty and here it says that there's all this stuff there. Right. of space being somewhat empty, but here's the stars and the planets and the beauty and the glory and the lights and the creatures. It's, it's a busy place. A busy yeah, Brenda, place. go ahead. Um, also, the words in circle and cyclical glow kind of mm -hmm. um, create an image for me of um, sort of like encompassing and surrounding and which Reminded of uh, in a mission on the lampstand that as we're to be, you know, we say we're supposed to be lights, but this to me says illumination, which is something different. Yeah. You know, that illumination, that brilliance that affects others rather than just being a single. Yeah, person. and where does, yeah, and thinking about like light, you kind of can find its source, but can you find a source for illumination? I think that's just like sort of where is it coming from? There's there's a certain mystery to the word illumination mm -hmm. as opposed to the word light. Go ahead. What else? What else? I think intention and relationship is implied here. It's not just um, rocks that glow or things that are out there randomly. There's a feeling that they're there for a purpose to illuminate our world. Okay. So you said relationship. So who's the relationship? Between the human being and the lights that God has provided for okay. us. Okay. And essentially with God. Okay. 
Additionally, what about the relationship of these creations to God? It's, it's an orderly relation. It's the obedience. And I love where it says, gladly setting. Mm-hmm. That the, the sun is glad to go down. It just personifies <laughs> the sun and gives the darkness of night such a, it's bowing down to God. Listen to, I want to read the Hebrew. Well, I'll sing it through, but listen to the Hebrew of that stanza, too. Malayim Ziv, Ziv, Umafikim Noga, that's Venus. Na'ez Zivam Bechol Haolam, Smechim Betsetam Vesasim Bevoam, Osim Beema Ritzon Konam. So, so the, the, the rhythm has an orderly, it, it fits, it's got a comforting kind of, it's very, I don't know, how would you describe that rhythm? It's, Am I starting to sing this for you? <clears throat> yeah, that's yeah, that's one. That's one. I, I was gonna say, you guys want to sing that melody or a different yeah, melody? Mahaleolam tahatu tuna sovevui moto hamit gael chayota kodesh benedar bechavod ala merkava zechutu misholiv nekiso chasev rachamim. So that so the melody is kind of like, um, but there are a lot of different melodies for this, and it rhymes, so it's easy to come up with other melodies for. Sometimes, I've been at shul when there's a wedding coming up, and oh, first of all, sing this to a wedding melody. So it's it's like Adon Olam. It's got that kind of, but it has this kind of. Can you record that for us? Uh, I just did. All right, one more stanza. But listen to the way. There are a lot of words you know. Tov, smechim. Ziv is this word for like glory and splendor. It's a great word for light. Noga. Sometimes you'll meet Israeli women named Noga. That's a name for Venus. Noga. It's beautiful. Tovi meorot shebarah Eloheinu Yitzaram bedat bevina uvhaskel koach ugvura natan bahem Liot Moshlim, the care of Tevel, Malahim Zivam Afikim Noga, Nahezivam Beholam, Semechim Betetam, Vesasim Bevoam, Osim Beema, Ritzon Konam. So Peppered through this text is a lot of mystical words. Pe'er, chavod, malchut, hitkin, shevach. There's all kinds of words here that come from the mystical tradition about God's, I want to say Sylvia used illumination, but also God's emanation, coming, God's coming downness into the world. Right? At their attributes, their, their God, the aspects of God's attributes that uh, literally shevach, she, 
שבח נותנים לו כל צבא מרום תפארת That's a Kabbalistic word וגדולה שרפים ואופנים וחיות הקודש So this poem is responding to the bracha Baruch Atah Hashem Yotzer HaMaorot God who creates the lights So this is a poem that is extending that idea So what are the ideas here? God, there is a cyclical, flowing, emanating, illuminating, rhythmically comforting extension of God into our world. But also, as Judah said, these are relationships. The creations themselves relate to God in some integral way. Smechim betzesam, they're happy. They're radiant lights. They, are, they, are, they rejoice in rising, gladly setting, and rush to obey their creator's will. Right? So it isn't just God created this stuff and God flows into the world, but these things themselves shed light and cast back and relate to God in some way. Right? And that all of this comes down to, into the human world. Okay? It comes down to the human world. So this is a, a very busy image of space, isn't it? A busy image of space in which... These celestial things are created for a purpose, created for a purpose to, to, um, uh, to be present, right? Also for human beings. Um, and um, they reflect they, they are, what, that in seeing them and in experiencing them, it reflects human beings back to this relationship with God. You look like you want to say something. <laughs> You know me so well. Yeah, I was. I was just. I love the line "smechim betzetam v'sasim um joyous in their departure and happy at their coming. And I thought that is just a beautiful Hasidic credo for life. Yeah, that we are like a spark of light, and we should be joyful at our arrival yeah. and joyful at our yeah. departure. Yeah, it's good to know that, that that Hasidic idea really comes from the from the mystical tradition. What 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 Hasidic exactly. uh, approach is it, how do you take these ideas and live with them and not just read poems about them and close the book? How do you live every day in, with this kind of wisdom and this yeah. kind of awareness or illumination, if you will? So why did I put this slide up here? Because this is my slide and not Judith. Anybody else been to Ravenna? Mm-hmm. Amazing place, right? I've made a couple of books on Ravenna. Ah. Mm-hmm. Ravenna is an interesting place. Um, what can you tell us about Ravenna? Well, when we looked in the small chapel, where they've got the cubic, cubistic design, we had a guide with us, my wife and myself and the guide, and I said to her, I now am convinced the Italians are crooks. <laughs> <laughs> I said, it's wallpaper. It cannot be done by human beings. Oh. It is that great. You cannot even imagine the depth and the the level of perspective they've gained just with these hand-chipped pieces of glass and gobsticks. So it's good to know this is a mass. This is the bigger. This is a massive cathedral. The mosaics are all they're gold. Okay, they're all gold in different colors and lights. We could have used this last year for color, but. Some of these images of God who sits on this chariot or this throne with celestial <coughs> creatures around God, that, that that sort of image, that image is was clearly comes from the ancient world, okay, 
that kind of how do we how do we imagine God sitting on this throne? So the imagery of, of here is you know God and Srafim, Ofanim, and all these other creatures, these celestial creatures that surround that coming from the Bible. And this is and it's an un, it, it is an unbelievable thing to stand there and look at these all the and the, the mosaic and the color. But when you see the gold coming at you, you experience this. You can the light shimmering and the experience of this gold. Any any Byzantine um, icons and mosaics and things. But this place is just. Uh, you know, you're standing in a church and you want to just say kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. I don't know how to say it. Well, and the idea of a, an illuminated manuscript literally means when they would put gold on it to bring light to it. Right. So it's a, it's it's the literal light of being reflected from the metal, but it's also the spiritual light. Yeah. So the light shines off, and it's and it's designed to create that kind of experience within the church. That's now, gorgeous. the last thing I want to say about this, about this pute. Yeah. In that cathedral, you remember on the one side that what. Yeah, all our, my, our grandparents are up there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I always feel like Lanzmann. I go in there. Yeah, it's like that. Last thing I want to say, and then we're gonna, is that, in the context of saying this prayer, based on Ezekiel's vision and also Isaiah's vision, its location in the prayer book is not insignificant, because you're you're meant to think about you know God who's Yotzer or Uvarei Choshech which is from Isaiah. It's a changing of the Isaiah Pasuk. God who creates lights and darkness. And so it's a, okay, we're kind of in that mode. Let's think of some more poetry. And we have these other generations of, of poetry added into that uh, formula and that concept. But it's also moving to, very close after this, in the prayer book, <clears throat> comes the first place on Shabbat morning where we say, Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. What's important about that is that in looking back at Isaiah, that Isaiah sees these creatures, which are not here envisioned in, in a Byzantine way. But when we say kadosh, 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 and this is what I talk about, the interaction with this landscape, this environment, was that we, and if you look at the language of the prayer book, we join in and say it together. All right? So the Siddur is moving us into this mode like, we're human beings. We don't just reflect on God's greatness and go like, illuminate me, emanate me. We also become partners with the heavenly, this busy outer space in interacting. And that this relationship, I want to I emphasize this relationship piece because I think it's really important thinking about how we think about, and we've been talking about theology a lot in, in these things, is that the move towards interacting in these holy moments and in these spaces and, and interacting with the landscape, interacting with the um, spiritual environment landscape is part of what we do in prayer, and that Judaism is a lot about, here are landscapes, here are characters walking up at the mountain, you read and interpret, but you also interact with, prayer is another way in which we interact with these landscapes. Is, and this one happens to be like, well, and that's why we're doing this with our feet, is that we get wings, right? We're, no, we're enactors, we get wings to go up there and be like, it's not just notice this landscape, become part of it. So that, I guess I want to say is this, this last piece of how, in many ways, this is a celestial, uh, a very um, theological way of looking at outer space. But there's so much about it. Is about It's not just about recognize God as creator. It's also inviting to step into the landscape and to interact with it as well. I just want to add to that, yeah. that if you think about what our purpose, one of our purposes in coming together, um, it's 
if you say that prayer is a way of interacting with the landscape, art is also yes, a way. Sure. So art can become a, a form of prayer yeah. in a way, uh, a form of um, reacting to the, the physical world around us in a spiritual way. Yeah. As is medi meditative, art is meditative right. also, right. same thing. Yeah, not, not always meditative, <laughs> right? but, but but yeah, it can be. It can be. That's, yes. that's a, that brings you right. into an altered state um, in one way, and I mean, art can, can be the opposite of meditative too, right? It can right. be, <laughs> mm -hmm. but um, yeah. So, I think of Rothko. You stand and look that's at those red squares, and, and there's something, you're in a, a meditative spiritual Absolutely. landscape. So. It's the I don't know the name. It's a, it's the major. It's the main cathedral in Ravenna, Italy. I don't remember the name of the basilica. It's near Venice. Uh, pardon? Ravenna's near Venice. Is it San Vitale? I have no idea. Ravenna? I'm not sure. Maybe no, It's near Ravenna's near. Not too far from Venice. It's a must-go place if you like art. It's pretty amazing. Can I yeah. switch over? Yeah, sure. Is that okay? So. so um, I brought in one artist today because I want to allow a lot of time for, for showing art and sharing art and talking about what we're going to do with our exhibit. So, let me just find, um, in a sense I brought in two artists because the artist that I brought um, worked with a poet. But I'm not going to speak too much about him. I'm hoping that some of you may be familiar with the poet. Um, his name is Jerome Rothenberg. Okay, well, you can sort of look him up on your own. Okay, let's see here. Okay, so we're going to go from a place of golden beauty and sublime imagery to a darker place. And I, I brought in an artist... That's, that's how I roll, what can I say? But I, I brought in an artist whose sort of um, most important, significant work is about the Holocaust. And it isn't all the work that he's done. It's the only work that he's done about this subject. Everything else he did was not related to the Holocaust. Um, his name is Ari Gallus. And I actually heard him speak at the Connie Conference of Jewish Art in Madison, Wisconsin. And I didn't realize until I researched him that he actually had uh, gotten his art degree there. He was a few years ahead of me. But um, he has a very, very interesting life story. And the, the work, I think, is it's really fascinating. He, he partnered with Jerome Rothenberg, who wrote poems that related to his drawings, as you will see in a moment. Now this is a picture of Ari Gallus, and he, when I met him, he looked just like that. He wears the hat, you know. He's one of these artists who sort of has a. Ari Gallus is what you're saying. Gallus, uh, yeah. He has a look, and a, a sort of persona, but he's got a wonderful, positive, energetic, um, open, fantastic personality. So he's not what you, you know, when you think of people who do art about the Holocaust or about sad subjects, you might. Think of a sort of a Sylvia Plath, de depressed kind of personality. Um, he's not like that at all. And um, the reason he did work about the Holocaust is because his personal life story is intervo interwoven with it. Um, 
he did a work he did a series of work uh, well let me just tell you about his story a little bit he was born in 1944 his his family was from Poland they were Polish Jews and his parents um, to escape the Holocaust they ran to Tashkent which is now Uzbekistan and and when I say escape they survived at great peril. He was born in 1944, so you can imagine what that was like for them. They lost all their extended family. And what was really unusual was they returned to Poland after the war. So he, his childhood was as a Jew in Poland post-World War II. And the way he talks about it is that he did, he did experience anti-Semitism. I'm sure he got beat up a lot. There were a lot of fights. But he also says, I grew up on this little farm in this little town, and my world was meadows and flowers. So he loved the natural world and the beauty of where he was living. And they emigrated to the US from Poland in 1958. So he was, um, he was already 14 years old, okay? Um, he did paintings that were called uh, paintings of light. They were pretty abstract. They were very much in keeping with the style of the time. I, I didn't show them because I don't think they're as impressive as this collection of work I'm about to share with you. This work is called hey, uh, The 14 Stations of the Cross. The 14 Stations of the Cross. And there is an acronym that he also uses as a title. Hey, Yud Dalit. It's an ac it stands for 14 numerically. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's an acronym of the Hebrew phrase Hashem Yinkom Badam, which means may God avenge their blood. Now, this is a photograph on the left. This is Ari working on his drawings. And let me describe to you what these are. Um, he, as I said, he had not done any work about the Holocaust despite his personal history. But he went to a Holocaust memorial in, in Whippany, New Jersey, and he observed its octagonal room with walls divided into sections. He says, it hit me instantly. I saw 14 black and white drawings of concentration camps as seen from the air. I remembered the 14 stations of the cross. I remembered Nobel Peace Prize recipient and Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel's words of witness to the countless cal calvaries Calvaries, as ref, you know, referring to Jesus in the camps, it was a calling that would consume him for nearly ten years. So what he did was he acquired declassified photographs that were shot from Allied planes as they flew over the concentration camps, and that's what you see here. It just gives me chills even to talk about it. And he blew them up into these huge charcoal drawings, and he did fourteen of them. So this, um, this photo shows the scale of the drawing, and this is the poet Jerome Rothenberg. And I'm going to just read you one of his poems, but it's very easy to find them online if you just Google the name Ari Gallus. Now, um, a lot has been written about this work. There's a scholar named Geneviève Cohen-Cheminet who wrote about this for the, um, at the Sorbonne in Paris. And she wrote about the burning space between one letter and the next, 
Rule-Generated Poetry in 14 Stations by Ari Gallus and Jerome Rothenberg. She says about Edmund Jabes's or Jabs, I don't know how to pronounce it, the Book of Questions, quote, then where is the truth but in the burning space between one letter and the next? This statement originates in the Talmudic view that saying contains an exhaustible surplus of meaning which me remains locked in Hebrew words and letters in what Emmanuel Levinas calls all the materiality of the saying. It is up to the interpreter to blow on the glowing coals of the letters and the flame that thus comes alive depends on the interpreter's length of breath. And this is a concept I'm sure you've studied many times, the idea that there's meaning between the letters, and that's where the commentary comes in. Now, I'm showing you this particular image because this is a close-up of one of the concentration camps, and I'm not, I don't remember which one, honestly. But when he looked at it, he noticed this death's head in it, which was just part of the topography. And that, if you will, is one of those things that's between the letters. Now this is an aerial view of Gross Rosen as rendered by Ari Gallus in this huge drawing. He says, under no condition can art express the Holocaust. To withdraw art from confronting this horror, however, is to assign victory to its perpetrators. Each of us who has survived must individually affirm our humanity and existence. As an artist and child of Shoah survivors, I have vivid memories of riding a train past the barbed wire fences of what had been the Gross Rosen concentration camp. So he lived in proximity to this, but then to see it from above, it just looks like pattern. I mean, the earth is innocent itself. It's what is laid upon it. Um, on January 19, 1993, the entire 14 stations pr project crystallized in my mind in a single flash. I immediately sketched a concept for a suite of drawings. And I just want to sit with that a moment. The idea that 14 drawings as a concept just appeared to him like a true inspiration. That very night I dreamed I was handed a glass jar labeled soil from Auschwitz. There were the ingredients in a listing as on any mundane product, Jews, Poles, Russians, Gypsies, Czechs, etc. Jews were the furs, F-I-R-S, and therefore the main ingredient. The 14th station is my cottage for all Shoah victims. Um, obviously, this is a very difficult project for him. This is Auschwitz. He said he used charcoal in a way drawing with ashes, if you think about it. It's so appropriate. Each drawing is 44 and a half by 72 inches, and that's six feet. It contains a 14th of the Kaddish, the Jewish prayer for the dead. So in the drawing, he includes one-fourteenth of the Kaddish prayer. It's hidden in the drawing. He says, you will not see the writing even if you know where to look, but by being aware of their presence, one will have recited the Kaddish by the time all 14 drawings have been viewed. This is my Kaddish for those who perished. I say it most sincerely through my art. The drawings with their layers of charcoal are based on black and white photography, as I said, and they are accompanied by Jerome Rothenberg's Gematria poems. Jerome Rothenberg is a very well-established published poet, and he's a professor at the University of California in San Diego, perhaps retired. I'm not sure about that now. Um, the poems are derived from the Hebrew spellings of the camps and are hand-lettered by Gallus over a ghost echo image of each camp. The drawings and the poems are framed in custom-made wrought iron 
embedded with fossil-like impressions of barbed wire. So the intention and the care that went into every aspect of this, and I know I see your face and it is grim, it's grim, but I decided to share it with you just because when you make something and you think about presenting it, there are so many levels of intention that can be built into the work. And we tend to overlook that to think about just the final appearance. I know that I'm guilty of that in a way. And um, this really inspires me to put more intentionality into every level and every step of the work that I do. And I'd like to read you one poem by uh, Jerome Rothenberg. But, oh, before I do, this is my last one of this, okay. Oh, okay, never mind, I'll read the poem now. This is Auschwitz-Birkenau. Now the serpent, I will bring back their taskmasters, crazy and mad, will meet them deep in the valley and be subdued, separated in life, uncircumcised, needy, shoes stowed away. How naked they come, my fathers, my fathers, angry and trembling the serpents you have destroyed. Their faces remembered, small in your eyes, shut down, soiled. See a light take shape in the pit, someone killed, torn in pieces, a terror, a god, go down deeper. So I think that the poetry takes some time to sit with, but I just wanted to give you a sampling of it. And these are beautiful. There was actually a documentary made about him, which, which we viewed at this um, conference, and I wasn't able to get it online. It, it's um, at the, U the United States Holocaust Museum in Washington has it, but it shows his process. And he, he just described how he would um, work on it and just have to take breaks and go for walks in the woods and just kind of with his wife and just get away from it. So he said the aerial views and the physical distance from the camps was essential. Quote, this was for me the only way I could draw this subject, says Gallus, whose aunt, uncle, and cousins were murdered in the camps and whose grandparents and other family members died during the war. Many people have made art from the photos of the dead or from scenes of camp life, but this was not possible for me. I wasn't there, and it was too horrible to imagine. Still, his subject matter proved emotionally draining. The most difficult part was dealing with the reality of the Holocaust and bringing it into my daily life. I felt that for 10 years I was strapped to the belly of a bomber looking down. I just think it's so interesting, the idea that getting some distance from something physically, this idea of this sort of bird's eye view, um, can bring us to look at the, the, the thing that we, that we can't even really bear to consider. So um, I just wanted to share that with you because I think it's a, a really extraordinary work. And he noticed as he drew, he talked about how there were so many details about the way things were arranged that he noticed just in the process of drawing it. And that's another thing um, on, a, on a less bleak note is that um, when we draw something, we get to know it in a very complete and intimate way. That pointing a camera is different. It's a different experience, although you compose carefully, physically guiding your hand around to render um, something that's in real space is, is profound.
So, well, okay. So, so before we go on, um, we're, we have some presentations for folks today. Um, I just want to invite comments. I feel I feel like we were in such a happy place with golden mosaics. I, I want to talk. I mean, the two really speak to each other. Yes. Yeah. There's so much about having this perspective of looking at those gold. I, I can't remember. They, they almost look like little tiles and pieces. The images. Um, you looked up and he was looking down. Right. Mm. That is so interesting because in a mosaic, when you're really close to it, all you see are the tesserae, the little squares. But you have to stand back to get some perspective and for the pieces to form a picture. Right, right. It's a, that's right. true. That's right. a great right. analogy. Right. But they fit together because you were talking about the obedience, the space, obeying God. And Judith, you said something very beautiful. The earth is innocent. It is what is laid upon it. So in the photos you, and the drawings, you see the earth, which are the fields and the farms, and then you see man's hand, what man what has engraved upon the earth. Yeah. You know. And it redeems the image in a way, because there's such a cruelty about that objectivity of those photos that were shot, and then the plane just kept going. Yeah. And then to re re revisit that it, with such a sense of elegy and love and Kaddish holiness and... I think he painstaking. Painstaking. I mean, it, it, it's also for him. It's almost like when you, you've talked so many times, Moral, about the meditative aspect. Ten years, can you imagine? And this is a very highly skilled artist. I mean, he really... The drawings are just absolutely exquisite. You don't want to look at them, but you can't stop looking at them because they're so beautiful. But that was all those self, you know, all those barracks, you know, so meditative um, and redemptive, I think, for him too, because there is survivor guilt. We, I think, we all have it to some degree. Um, so I think, I think that art can be very redemptive. I've been thinking about um, art as comfort and the value of comfort when dealing with things like the Holocaust, mm -hmm. things like what else is like the Holocaust. This, this whole conversation around his interpretation of the photos of the camps and art as a form of prayer and everything, but what we deal with in here is visual and spoken art. Um, I have a nephew who's a musician and a music teacher, and he's just finished this project of taking the book, I Never Saw Another Butterfly, the mm -hmm. children's poems from Frankenstein, and having children of today, ranging I think from nine to 20, compose musical pieces wow. based mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. each of those poems. Mm -hmm. And this was a concert wow. that was debuted recently in Toronto, which is where he lives. And um, we're talking about trying to bring it to Chicago. Wow. It's just such an amazing project. But talking about how art can interpret something like that, and it and it's such a beautiful trip. It's beyond a tribute. It it it, yeah, it makes what they created live forever in a new form. Right. So I mean, what greater way could you honor? Yeah. Uh -huh. um, and their creation. The, the, and their the connection between the children then and the children now is yeah. just so strong for me. Do you have an? Are there any recordings of it? The, it, 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 the concert was live streamed, and I have a link. So Would you share that with share me, that. or you could email it to the group, yeah. or um, or I could. I'd be happy to. I really hope that we'll do more of this kind of sharing, because our community can continue beyond um, this week. And in fact, Sharon has invited us to her house next week. I hope I know some of you can't come, but I'm I'm hoping to see you there, because I think that'll be 
wonderful. Yes. One point two. When you seem to feel ambivalent about bringing in something so heavy, I recently discovered a book that I really love called Art is Therapy, and um, he talks about like seven kind of psychological functions of art. So instead of looking at it by period piece or whatnot, sort of thinking what are you lacking, and so what might you want from art? And one of the things he talked about that I thought was really interesting was um, sorrow as a place that's worthy of just holding and being mm -hmm. in. So like the Vietnam Memorial and certainly what you brought that we are sort of quick in our culture to try to make ourselves feel better or <laughs> you know kind of move beyond or see a bright light but the sort of you know I guess in a mindfulness way calming impact of saying this too and let's you know the arts have this particular way of being able to depict and hold and keep us in that space um, that it's a worthy place to be and it is part of us I mean I certainly feel it's part of me so you can't deny it or you can't stuff it down so yeah to experience it in the context of art like beautiful music or, or you look at a work of art that really makes you feel sad but also makes you feel happy to be alive to be seeing it because it's wonderful and moving. So when we feel those emotions, we know we're alive and that's, that isn't all bad. And we're up. It, it also takes us out of our little selves to something on a higher plane, I think, when we care about something else that's beyond our own little microcosmic world. I think that this description of art, poetry, music that I've ever heard, I think was stated by George Shorty. Mm. He said that music is where you are and takes you to the place that you want to be. Mm. And I thought that was just, it said everything. It, that, is, that is great. And I'm hoping that, um, that this course will stimulate some <coughs> ideas for all of you. Um, and it doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to go home and make a landscape, uh, you know, whatever, but on some level, the, the hope is that this will um, inspire something that's a little more, has a little more intention, maybe a little more mindfulness and, and also, you know, gain something from what we did here. So um, Sharon, do you want to, I have sure. you queued up here. So let's, let's move on to, we have our presentation and then we're going to talk about sharing ideas. Um, you may not know what you want to do for the exhibit. Um, you don't have to participate. It's obviously optional, but I want to invite you to. So, all right, Sharon, do you want the slides first? Or yeah. um, I'm going to work it together. Okay, so the, do you want to, you can just uh, push the down for your map. Okay. Thank you for the opportunity to present some of my work. Um, um, I would say that I've been considered or considered myself an artist since I was a really young girl. And um, after I got married and moved to Columbus, Ohio, um, I started painting seriously. And um, I saw that a theme that kept repeating itself in my work was the olive base. And at first I was thinking, um, 
like how juvenile, like I'm an adult now. The olive phase is, you know, like your children's alphabet. And that as I continue to learn more about um, Judaism, as I did not grow up in a religious home, I saw that and I learned that the olive phase was the foundation or the building blocks to creation. And um, it intrigues me. It's like a default um, theme that comes up a lot. Um, like if I haven't worked in a while and I go back to um, like just getting wet with my um, creating, I always like start with the olive phase. Or if I'm doodling, it just comes to me. So this was one of the first. Let's see if this is in it's order. It's oil, right? Okay, let's, should I go back? Let's this just, is oil. Yeah. Can you give us an idea of scale as you go through these? Um, so this is about, if you turn this vertically, and so, I don't know, 30 by 40? Okay, so a little okay. bigger than what we see there. A little, yeah, bigger than what you see there. Um, this, is, this is interesting because this is a watercolor on fabric, which is unusual. Then I want to show you, um, so this is a print of an original. The original is a little bit larger. This is a watercolor. I would say I've sold over 1,500 of these. And so much so that I then have, um, I, and then this is like, to me, this is the child olive phase, or this is like a great bas mitzvah present. And um, you can learn the letters by seeing this visual. So I did a sequel to this. I'm not sure it's as good, um, but I gave more in it. And I'll show you. Now, why don't I put this up here so we can... Okay, so this is the sequel. And this is watercolor, and this is Prismacolor. Prismacolor, which is like an oil-colored pencil, and I gave the gematria with it. And then this, there's a little more Hasidus in here, so you can't necessarily learn the alphabet by looking at this, but um, you can like learn some concepts. Like, which is fun is like this nun is a nair, or the ches is a kala. And so, or the shin is our chauffeur. So this is like another, and this is, looks a little bit like candy. I don't know, I don't know if there's on the connection. Whatever. Here. So that's, Put it in the front. Oh, Sorry. I want to remind and you of like time, too. And then like the top, sure. it has like the tefillin for the, the roche and then the arm. So it's a, it's a little fun. Sorry, mm -hmm. Oh, sorry. Okay. Okay. So then, this happens to be very large. I don't know. Like. It, the width is this board, and the you know it would go almost to the ceiling and the and the ground. It, this is an oil. This is canvas, and this is based on a, a Hasidic discourse, and it's a yud 
coming, expanding, and then contracting, and then expanding and contracting again. Um, so here I'm, I'm still with it, using the letters. This is more recent. These are also large, it, like as, as big as this screen, vertical. So it takes up basically this wall. And here's this olive base. So this is this is this dynamic that I've been working with um, for many years. Is that um, I'm trying to reveal on the physical two-dimensional plane that there's godliness that's out there that's not see, perceived by the visual eye, and that um, that these combinations of letters are actually allowing physical existence to exist. And by the combinations in other worlds, it's like a parallel to what's going on down here in the physical world. <coughs> so I don't know if this is necessarily that. That's like a combination of my work. But this is more recent. In fact, inspired by Judith, because I was going to take this class. And so I haven't necessarily, I, I don't know, I mean, I haven't done a piece in, I would say, a few months, and um, that would be just to, I felt like, how lame, I'm going to go to this artist class, and I haven't been working, actually, with my materials, so I, um, I did this piece, I have another one that I'm not finished with yet, but, um, so this is a little bit where I'm up to, so... I love this work. And this is really large, too? Um, this is as big as the screen vertically. Okay, so it's um, it's charcoal again? It's this is charcoal. Ink? Is there any ink in there? No ink. All charcoal. I, as you know, I love your charcoal pieces best. I always have. Um, so I think this is great. And, and this is kind of what we're trying to do here, is like get your, in the studio, get your hands dirty. Right. It's wonderful. So... That's, so oh, oh, I have one more other thing. I also am a fiber artist. Um, I'm trained as a fashion designer. Right now I teach the art of dressing. And um, I've been working in fiber forever. I don't know. Just like um, I work in different mediums. But I also, I don't know that I do this. I do a lot Ooh. of things. But I make collar covers. And Can you, we hand them around? Sure. So here's one. There's another, and these are just like what I have offhand. But okay. I'm usually like, I love the thread and the needle. <laughs> you, could, you could make a, I was looking at a level of letters, you could make a beautiful color for a I could, I, <laughs> this is so cool. oh, 770. Yeah, I forgot what that is. Yeah. And just, this is just any old color. Can't be the hollow that lives here. Wow. Can I ask a sure. So you said you didn't grow up in uh, a very no, I didn't traditionally grow up. religious home. No. So how did this go hand in hand with you learning about Judaism and art? It pretty much, you just what did you do to learn more about Judaism? Um, I studied Torah. I, so, I mean, is I, your husband religious? I mean, what else? Um, uh, he was like, he, he was not. He was like one of those nice Jewish boys that could go either way, depending on who he married. 
<laughs> Anyways. But now you're very observant. Yeah, we're so we're you like. Okay. So you've gone. I have a daughter and three sons, and they're all rabbis, and my son-in-law's a rabbi also. And is all your art Judaically themed? It's so funny. So I remember my mom asking me, she goes, can't you do anything that's not religious? I mean, <laughs> I get that too. <laughs> can't you? And I said, and so I wrote this, this is like one of, like something in my artist statement, but I wrote, um, like I thought about it and I thought, no, because to me, like my work is to try to make everything one, because we're told that everything is God. And so if it is, then... Like, what's the difference? Or, what's yeah. the difference if I'm doing art, or I'm changing a diaper, or I'm driving a carpool, or mm -hmm. it's not right. So, so to me, it's the same. Well, are you planning to show this work for in our exhibit? This piece? I don't know. We'll talk about it. I have to move us along because we have okay. such limited okay. time. Sure. Any other questions, quickly? Thank you, Sharon. So, uh, Brenda, do you want to push the button? For, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we'll do the we'll do the ones that are on slides first, and then we'll we'll do the people who brought things. In. Okay. So, um, just to oh, okay. Right. Which button, babe? Down. Down. Okay. Um, so I find it so interesting, you know, we're talking about connections, and I'm just going to show you the, I do holla cover, <laughs> or I don't, I, I started doing them, but I started felting, and um, just recently, after this class last year, because someone, was, we had a lot of fiber artists, so I started, um, so this is a whole series of holla covers that I did, that's just a, a close-up view, um, of beading, felting, fabric, just kind of putting everything together. Um, so I'm starting with these two to kind of show you um, kind of, you know, how I'm exper experimenting a little bit. And the slides that I'm showing you are kind of just a thought process. I'm not really necessarily showing you um, finished art pieces. Um, and I'm just going to, a couple of things, just going to shout out some words here of my thought process. Connections, boundaries, sharing spaces, crossing over and into, stitching and sewing together, repair, heal, hide, discover. So that's kind of what I've been thinking about the last. From that, um, that's a painting that's probably like four feet by three. And that came um, a little bit before the pomegranate um, holla cover. But there's a theme here that I continue to go back to. Um, these are all actually rocks that are sewn onto the canvas with uh, wire. Um, and then the boundary and the life-giving breath is kind of what this is all about. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Could you talk about that a little bit more than just one sentence? I only have five minutes. No, I'm just kidding. Life-giving <laughs> Yeah. Um, it's kind of one flowing into the other, the circle, the continuation, um, and inside the growth, the womb, the seed, those are my thoughts on that.
So as you're born, you get the breath of life. Is that the idea? Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is, I take a lot of photographs and I use them um, for, they're kind of like my sketches in a way. This is Park Avenue Beach um, just this past winter. And the whole idea, the thing that comes through for me, well, first of all, it was just stunning to look at. Um, but it's the earth, it's the man-made, you know, steel structure, and then the earth and the water pounding on it, and then leaving this stunning piece of ice hanging from it. And I took a whole series of them. Like, so wow. I, I thought it was a the, <laughs> And then um, I took a whole... Yes. I'm very drawn to Yeah, and I took a whole series. I took about 20 of them. Um, and each one, depending on the position of them at the beach, you know, because they kind of go around, depending where the sun and the light hits it, some were melted more, some had more ice, some, you know, and one, the very last one was completely melted. They were stunning. We're so. You should go there on the stormy day. On the stormy day, there's a water show. The water is heating, and you just go there. It's absolutely yeah. fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then this translated into this for me. Sorry? Is it a permanent? I don't even know what, no. You know what it is? In the summer, they hang the boating signs on it. It's just a steel frame where they hang summer signs that say loading dock here. And there are like five of them. And then just this winter, it, you know, the water and the ice and So this is parking in Park? Yeah, just down the street. Yeah, gorgeous. Um, and then this is a painting that's probably, I don't know, three by three that I just did maybe a month ago with that same image in my mind of a structure and boundaries, how we as humans relate to each other and put ourselves into sections. And I've been very interested in numbers and how numbers connect and um, how they're related to each other. Pardon? So what's the significance of that number in particular? Or is there a significance of that number in particular for you? Um, if you don't want to say what it yeah, is, it's kind of, just that yeah, it is. It just is. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, definitely. Um, so that's that. And again, this is another photograph. I've also been taking a lot of photographs of the ground and the street. Um, I've been fascinated lately with because they've been doing repaving everywhere. So I've been taking my camera hmm. and taking photographs of what workers, what man has laid down onto a road that's been built and then make these fascinating designs actually. So I've been doing a lot of that. Um, and just how and how these objects, how these things relate to each other and the color of it also. And this is um, a, a detail of the painting I did for last year's mm -hmm. show, which I'm kind of carrying on that same theme, um, the letter hey, which when you say hey, it's a breath. And I'm like out of breath and nervous right now. But, um, and these are, you know, there's a boundary of the frame. And then within these, I use nails, kind of a mixed media thing, and then wire the breath flowing out to the four corners of the earth and also um, cr crisscrossing and connecting us along the way. And you have Gimetria there too. Pardon? Gimetria, you have the number five. The number five, yeah, yeah. That was up in the, up in the corner, yeah. That, related to it too. And this is just, um, we flew to New York just this last week and I'm always fascinated, again, which I thought was so interesting, um, with aerial views of the, of the earth. So wherever I go, I'm always, you know, snapping them out the window and then I usually kind of stick them somewhere and I never look at them again. But um, 
I decided and probably along these lines for this show, I want to um, incorporate this, this idea of um, earth that is God made, that is, is there, and then how man reacts to it. And that quote that you just said, it's what we lay upon it. That this changes is such a great it. composition, by the way. Just Isn't take that? out the thing on the bottom. Exactly. And it's like perfect. Mm -hmm. Isn't abstract it just stunning? Painting. I yeah. know. I know. Paint that thing And up then I done. started looking <laughs> up artists who do that, and uh, there was some salt. I've never heard. I don't know what salt. They're not salt mines. They're salt. I don't know. I'll show you later. But this is uh, actually in South Africa. These are. Um, this is one of the townships, and we're always driving back and forth past them. You know, quickly and other that that idea of passing by something quickly, and I'm always snap, 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 snap. And this one particularly um, struck me, and I've been working on a painting, which is the next slide, abstract, that kind of has to do with this. But again, it's this idea of people here who are connected, who necessi don't necessarily want to be connected, but are there cramped in these little, beautiful, horrifically not so beautiful places. And there's one, this isn't a, a slide of it, but there was another one that I had. And on the post, it's a number five. And it's where all their electricity comes from and stretches to everybody that lives in this tiny little community here, you know? So, so there's, a, there's a kind of connectedness, sort of whether we like it or not, and there are boundaries that, that's the whole thing. And that's kind of what I've been working on. This is just a study for it. It's, it's probably three by three. Um, and this is kind of the first layer of the landscape. But what I've been doing, what I'm adding to it, I don't, it's hard to see, but I've been stitching uh, with actual, with heavy thread, stretching different, I mean, stitching different parts of the landscape together, you know, to, as, as an idea of either, you know, repairing, hiding, replacing, um, uh, forming different kinds of human connections, so that's kind of like the thought process. Mm -hmm. What are you selling off? Of? Is it canvas? canvas? Yeah. So it's a stretch canvas, canvas. Uh -huh. and you're just yeah. selling right in. Yep. Yep. And I, I'm experimenting with that. I've never done it before, and sometimes you know the needle's too big, and then the hole, and then the string, and then you can see the hole through it. And so you know, I'm open to any suggestions on that because I'm just kind of experimenting with it. Um, and then just very quickly, um, I think somebody read this last year. This is. Uh, What's his name? Um, Tick, not? Yeah, love. We are here to awaken from the illusion of our separateness. Somebody read that last year, and that has resonated with me. And that's it. Um, we are here to awaken from the illusion of our separateness, which I love. And I think that was my last one. Thank you so much. Any questions or comments for Brenda? Lois, I don't know whether in those... Um, in the townships, whether that the electricity comes from a legal source, but in, in Buenos Aires and in um, Brazil, they connect illegally, Absolutely. but they get it anyway, Absolutely. which is so it is, and then at the same time, so terrible, terrible, terrified to yeah. be out in that. Yeah, right. so it's just the whole yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, would you like to go next? Well, there's Phyllis and Nessia, and I think that's it. Okay. I don't think that's um, it. I was involved with Lepoli too, and Gematria, 
and uh, did, doing printing, and I showed you already a lot of stuff here. So, and recently, I, I don't have much uh, new email. Uh, I cooperate with a ceramicist, I do ceramics. And uh, she throws on the wheel, I don't. So I design and I decorate it. And I have a table now that when you go out, you see. Uh, I also make beads. And maybe I should, and maybe I don't know. But uh, I make beads from porcelain um, and uh, stains and whatever. And then I, this is, you can pass it around again. Um, so you'll see it later. Um, also, I'm involved in gematria and so on, and uh, so maybe the work that I'll do is just lettering and that's something. On ceramics? You're doing no, the lettering? No, I do print, and, uh, and I take form. You know the form that you have with the, when you buy fish or something, they give you the white form? No, the styrofoam. Yeah. So I took a big piece of, uh, I don't know, a board, and I put it in the, in the, in the bathtub, and I peeled the paper on it, and I did a ktuba, and I, 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 but I didn't. I already people show it, saw it in this class, so I didn't bring much stuff. But you can see my uh, work that I cooperate with a ceramicist, which is Judaica. It's spoon rest, and also I like lettering, so I write. And I mean, it's really um, okay. Uh, spoon rest, a dish for uh, apple and honey, and uh, I did one uh, of a matzah holding matzah plate with the Aramaic um, quotation from Halachman, Yad Yachlu Avatana. This is the way, the, the bread of affliction that our forefather ate in the land of Egypt. So, you so see I it have like. a thought, since all of Nessia's work is in the hall, maybe what we should do is just step out and look at it, and then we can take a five-minute break and come back and ask her questions and then look at Phyllis's work. How does that sound? Great. Great.